Hello, uh, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So we have uh, finished all of the stories uh, that HP Lovecraft wrote and published under his name up until 1929. Although we uh, and we include some other stuff too, some stuff that were unpublished during his life and, and some little fragments. So I've covered most of the fiction. I think if I missed anything, let me know. But for now, we're going to move on to talk about a handful of revisions that he did in that same time period. There are five uh, in particular, um, and the first of these is is uh, two black bottles. So two black bottles is it's written by uh, Wilfred Blanche Tallman. This is one of uh, Lovecraft's correspondents. Uh, one of the people he corresponded with in his letters. We talked about many of the letters that he wrote uh, or that Lovecraft wrote to Tolman uh, in the previous series where we looked at the, the letters. And I think there's some more letters coming up. Um, this is not a, a Lovecraft story. And it kind of bothers me that this gets kind of discussed as a Lovecraft story. Like some of the audiobook versions, they just present it as a Lovecraft story. It's just like Two Black Bottles by H.P. Lovecraft. Or the the there's an H.P. Lovecraft wiki out there that just presents this as as an H.P. Lovecraft story, and then the only place it mentions Wilfred Blanche Tallman is on the sidebar, and it says written by Tallman and Lovecraft. Um, so you know there are revisions that are Lovecraft's work, and you know the Mound, the the Zelia Bishop ones are mostly his work, although some of the ideas may have come from Bishop, and those are pretty much his work. So we'll treat those more as Lovecraft stories. Um, but some of these, we don't really know how much input Lovecraft had. Uh, some, um, he just read them and edited them. Like that was the case with the Sonia Green um, stories, the two Sonia Green stories where he just sort of maybe gave some comments and did some editorial work and revised a few things. This one might be in the middle somewhere. I mean, the main plot line, the, the story was written by Tallman and Lovecraft made some changes and I'm going to try to talk about the story as it stands, as it is, and not get too bogged down in this question of what, which line is Lovecraft's. Um, now, apparently, Tallman complained a little bit about the, the changes that Lovecraft made in the story before it was published in, in Weird Tales in um, 1927. It was published in August 1927, Weird Tales. So this is about the time that, that Lovecraft wrote... Pickman's model or published Pickman's model. Um, so it's, you know, Tallman never really becomes much of a writer. Um, he doesn't really follow through on a, on a writing career. He does other things, but it's a good story. It's a really a stand-up story. Um, it does feel like it has Lovecraftian moments, I guess, but that's doesn't necessarily mean he, he wrote it or should be credited with this, this story. Um, now, where do I know? How do I know this? Well, I get this from the the editorial comments um, in in this compendium I have, and it's and I trust that this the, this editorial work that's been done for this collection of the of collaborations. Specifically, what they say is um, it's one of the more entertaining of Lovecraft collaborations. Tallman brought it to Lovecraft in the summer of twenty six. It may not have been his first weird story, but it was certainly one of his one of his firsts. Um, Lovecraft took the story in hand, made a number of revisions to it, and helped Tom and send it off to Weird Tales, where it was quickly snapped up. Um, so that's it. That's so. I think we have to address this not really as a Lovecraft story, but we're going to talk about it because it's. I, I said I would talk about the collaborations 
all of them, all the ones I can get a hand, on a hand, my hands on. There, there's one or two in this book that I think have been kind of debunked as Lovecraft, even collaborations. Let me skip those, but um, you know, but we'll see. Um, nevertheless, this is a good story, and I think it has uh, themes that are interesting to us, uh, to followers of this particular read-through of, of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, maybe not too much on the racial stuff. But uh, now I think if Lovecraft had had his hands on this, there's a lot of space for him to have made it uh, much more of a racial thing. Um, uh, like the way he might portray some of the, the, the villains. But it's um, what it really has is this narrative of, of existing traditions, like hidden traditions under, under like kind of underground, into, you know, in marginalized communities and small towns, you have kind of these weird traditions that are alive and well and, and threatening. Um, so I think that's the main kind of interesting thing going on in this story. Or it's, it's just a straight up really good uh, tale. It's, it's, it's creepy. It's got creepy moments. Walking, it's got walking through the graveyard moments. It's got the, the mystery of the mysterious death. It's got magic. It's got uh, kind of some Christian horror um, in the backdrop of it. So all in all, a really interesting story that's, I think, worth checking out if you're a Lovecraft fan or not. I think it's it has some value. But don't don't uh, tell people it's it's Lovecraft story. It's um, it's he had a hand in it. He played a role in the publication and the writing of it. But the, primarily this was written by Tallman. So it, the story does sort of uh, remind us of the terrible old man, this idea of like storing souls in, in bottles um, and this idea of trapping souls. It, it appears in other fiction. I, I just, I've been thinking about Babylon 5 a lot and there's a, a Babylon 5 movie, isn't there, about a guy who kind of takes people's souls and, and basically traps it in bottles, right? Um, and he, he thinks he's kind of preserving the best souls and they could talk to them and things like that. So that, that's kind of hinted at in The Terrible Old Man in a few lines. This whole story is about someone who through some old tradition, some old magical tradition that's been um, kind of revived or sustained uh, through, through kind of, uh, I guess, wizards that are, that are hanging on the edges of, of these societies. You know, this, this effort is sustained, right? And there's a bit of immortality tied up into that. Like, the if your soul is somehow preserved, you're able to live forever. But it's also a way of preserving the souls of, of the dead. So it seems to do both. Um, so as the story begins, we're, we're told by our, our narrator that he's basically, he's called to this small town to deal with the estate of his uncle, Domine... Johannes Vanderhoof. Um, but rumors are that he's somehow not really dead or, quote, suspended somewhere between heaven and hell because of the old sexton's curse. It, if it had not been for that old magician, he might still be preaching the damn church across the moor. So the mystery is, is there some kind of follow play at heart with the, the death of this, uh, this, this reverend, right? Domine, I guess it's, it's some kind of, he's sometimes called reverend, sometimes domine. All right, so he goes to this town of Stahlbergen, and he answers this. Um, oh, he gets a summons from a lawyer about this estate. So he goes to this town, Dahlbergen, finds out that his uncle died, and there's some estate he needs to clean up. He has to go there. So he goes to this small little hamlet where he was 
preaching, uh, and he meets the guy who wrote the letter, whose name is Mark Haynes. He was the writer of the letter, and he warns him right away, too, that there's something suspicious going on. So this is the first sign that there's really something suspicious going on, that the old sexton, Abel Foster, is up to kind of no good. He's, he's connected with the devil. Now, this obviously has it's a Christian story, which isn't like the Lovecraft brand, certainly. His, his magic isn't like devil worship, usually. There's witches and things, but they're never really presented as the devil-worshipping witches you normally see in, in pop culture and, and in the popular mentality about witches at the time. So through him, we get a bit of the backstory of this. Um, Foster, Abel Foster, the sexton who arrived. And he came like 10 years earlier. And Vanderhoof, who he kind of runs the local, you know, churches, he, he gave him like this old church to, to sort of run. But everyone thought he was suspicious and, and no one seemed to like him very much. Um, quote, no one but Vanderhoof seemed to like him for his presence brought a suggestion almost of the uncanny. He would sometimes stand by the door and when the people came to church and the men would coldly return a servile ball while the woman brushed past in haste, holding their skirts aside to avoid touching him. Um, but nevertheless, it seems Vanderhoof is influenced by him because we're told that after this foster arrives, he actually begins to affect and transform how Vanderhoof preached, right? So there's supposed to be rumors that, that he kind of made some kind of deal with the devil, and he starts his sermons get really weird. Right, and he starts going back to kind of old-fashioned preaching about he about hell, about spirits, about demons, about ghouls at night. So there's all these kinds of really creepy um, sermons, and this actually gets people to to stop wanting to go to Sunday services to hear him, because he kind of carries around with him this terror of the of this you know of there's kind of a darkness over him brought in by Foster. So Foster is the evil agent who, who comes in. Um, so basically the church gets more and more shunned by the population. So that's kind of a Lovecraftian thing is the shunning of, of a site because of some horrible things that are happening there and the spreading of knowledge about that by rumors. Um, but this is much more direct. We get a very much more clear explanation right, right away that there's something involved here with uh, some kind of devil worship. So he, he gets more of the story after this, uh, basically about the disappearance of Vanderhoof. And he basically sort of vanished. Um, and then Haynes, uh, well, Haynes sees Foster, or Haynes reports. Yeah, Haynes reports that he's, that Foster was seen, like, digging a grave near that church that, again, no one goes to. It, it's because um, he's creeped. I mean, now both kind of churches are kind of, you know, creepy to the local residents. Um, so... He's digging this grave, and and then he just shows up and says, well, Vanderhoof died, and he buried him. So he kind of admits to burying him. But there's some kind of suspicious backstory there about what happened, how he died, and all that. Quote, the villagers were conscious of the adult uncanniness in his presence and avoided him as much as they could. With Vanderhoof gone, they felt more insecure than ever, for the old sexton was now free to cast his worst spells over the town from the church across the moor. Um, so... Uh, this isn't a long story, so it doesn't take long for him to decide he's going to just go confront Foster directly um, by going across this moor. So we got this wonderful uh, scene where he, very has, he has to travel through this creepy swamp, this creepy moor, um, and kind of go through a graveyard even. He has this fear of ghosts while he's doing this, kind of a, a, a 
kind of a, just an uncanniness throughout this whole whole scene. It takes up a big chunk of the story, um, but it's pretty good stuff. In fact, there's another uh, kind of suspicious, old, like the previous uh, leader, Domine Slot, uh, who also sort of vanished. And he walks through and he finds his uncle's grave when he's there. And he sees another grave near it, which is, it's got these crumbling stones around it, which he thinks is the grave of this Domine Sloan. So he's kind of, he gets the same fate as this previous um, reverend. So anyways, he gets to the church and he, he enters it and he, he finds this Mr. Foster, uh, this Abel Foster sitting there. But he's kind of strange and catatonic and kind of terrified. And he thinks like maybe he's drunk. Or he's not quite sure what's up with this guy, but there's just something kind of really creepy about his behavior and his his attitude. Um, and he's he thinks actually that this is Vanderhoof kind of come back from life, and he's really terrified that uh, his soul has escaped. He says, "I thought you was him trying to come for it. He's been trying to get out, and trying to get out since I put him in there. Maybe he got out now. Maybe he's out, right? So maybe the zombie of Vanderhoof." has returned to seize this this uh, soul. And the souls are being kept in these little black bottles. Now, the story is called Two Black Bottles. So what's this other black bottle? Well, it turns out this is the bottle that's holding the soul of, of Foster himself. Once Foster is clear that this is not, in fact, Vanderhoof's zombie coming back for a soul, he begins to tell his story, how Slot, this previous uh, domine, has had taught him all he knows about like devil worship and demon worship and, and all his other kind of magical abilities. And he used this, like he basically uses this to curse the entire town and to somehow corrupt the mind of, of Vanderhoof, right? Um, but finally he captures this soul and buries him. It doesn't, it's not clear he kills him directly, um, but takes his soul anyway, so it seems good enough, and buries the, the body. And that's why he's fearful that he's coming back. Um, so basically, the narrator says, you got to give back this soul, and I want it back. Um, but Foster says he can't really do it. He doesn't really have the magical ability to do this properly. He's kind of still, I guess, kind of a bit untrained. He didn't get his full lessons from Slot or whatever. And a fight breaks out, and in the fight, a second black bottle is broken. And this black bottle contains Foster's soul. The escape of that soul leads to Foster's death. And his decay suggests that there was almost a degree of immortality tied to him. I'm not sure how long ago he met Slot. It's uh, quite a while ago. So definitely this Foster is supernaturally old. Um, but... Where's his, where's his death scene? Um, yeah, he slid slowly towards the floor, gazing at me with hatred and eyes that were rapidly dim dimming. His flesh changed from white to black and then to yellow. I saw with horror that his body seemed to be crumbling away and his cloth falling into limp folds. The bottom of my hand glowed warm. I glanced at it fearfully. It glowed with a faint phosphorescence. Stiff with fright, I set it upon the table, but could not keep my eyes from it. All right, so that's the, the other bottle, the bottle of the soul of his his uncle. So our narrator leaves the bottle aside. He doesn't mess with it. Um, 
and looks out the window and he notices that the the this cross on the grave of Vanderhoof has fallen over. Um, now I'm wondering, like this guy uh, Foster, just kind of killed this guy, stole the soul through magic, and then dug a grave for him, but took the time to build a headstone and a cross and everything. I'm not sure about that, but it's good effect because he sees that there's been someone disturbing the grave, um, and he flees the church. And as he flees, he notices there's someone walking around someone walking around right he goes back to the town and tells the townspeople kind of what happened and everyone's like yeah we don't want anything to do with that you can i mean you can check it out if you want but we don't want to go back and check it out but finally an old man um shows up and says like you know i've i knew old slot and you know vanderhoof was even worse but i'll check this out for you right because he's he's kind of it's like an, the old stand watch kind of situation as i that's a, that's a that's a reference to Stephen King, but you know a lot of his stories have the the old kind of standing up and doing the job of of remembering. Um, and that's the thing. Like this story has a little bit more. It's about a little bit more about remembering and memory of a community and memory of the past than forgetting. Uh, although there is an element of forgetting here too. I don't know if that's that's like a Lovecraftian addition, but I wouldn't be surprised because that's that's you know kind of the bury them deep rather than expose them and defeat them that you see in in like Stephen King as I, as I said before but anyways him uh, the narrator and this old man come back to the grave and find it open and exposed so they um, uh, do what they can they bury they, they fill in the grave including they, they bury like the headstone on the cross that was there and they bury that too bury and cover up the whole thing so there's kind of your act of forgetting I guess but he's still out there right Vanderhoof is body presumably still out there looking for its soul and he, he went into the church so it's possible he got it and if he knows this magic maybe he's able to release his own soul that's not clear so that evil uh sexton vanderhoof no evil domine vanderhoof might still be there to carry on the the, the evil tradition of slot um that's been kind of passed on via foster to to vanderhoof so we got a nice kind of genealogy of evil um, but it's not family, as we see in Lovecraft so much here. It's it's more the position, the clergy. Right? I mean, that's a great element that's added. And I, as far as I know, Lovecraft really, never really did that, is to expose kind of the corruption of the clergy. I think Lovecraft just didn't care about organized religion enough to really explore those issues in too much of his fiction. He's interested. He's doing his own thing, right? And uh, But, you know, I like that element of the story. I like that it is although it's supernatural and it's got uh, you know this horrific plot of, of soul stealing and murder and devil worship and all that but it's grounded in this relationship between the the clergy and the uh, parishioners in kind of a rural area where these are community leaders it's like your your leader becomes corrupt it's almost like if your your mayor becomes a corrupt man what do you do in that situation when the one in power has this has fallen into evil. Um, so that's a nice element of, of the story. So overall, a, a nice tale. It's it's worth checking out, I think. It's, it's just takes a few minutes to read. Um, so that's it. That's all what I'm going to say about it. Um, it'll go like this for the rest of the revisions, except for ones that I think really are much more of Lovecraft's own stamp. And speaking of that, the next one, The Thing in the Moonlight, is an interesting revision because it's kind of inverted. It's, it's um, one of two letters or two stories that Lovecraft told in 
in letters to Donald Wandry, the first we already looked at, the very old folk, this one, and that was repeated, that was copied, that was printed basically as it appeared in the original letter. The thing in the moonlight was edited. So in this case, it's someone else editing Lovecraft's original work sometime later for publication. So it's a collaboration, but it's an inverted collaboration. It's not the best called like a revision. It really is uh, a bit of a collaboration. Uh, then we have uh, two stories by, I want to get the name right, Aldolfo de Castro, um, who was a, a writer who came to Lovecraft for two revisions, The Last Test and The Electric ex Executioner. These are collaborations, they're revisions. So there is a Lovecraft stamp on these. He did put a significant amount of work into these. But again, these are stories that aren't primarily written by Lovecraft. And then we have The Curse of Yig, which is the first of the three bishop um, ghostwriting. Right, so maybe we need to, to be specific about the language. Like, what's a revision? What's a collaboration? What's purely ghostwritten? It seems that the Curse of Yig and especially the Mound were essentially ghostwritten by by Lovecraft. But um, apparently, B Bishop talks about how it was more mutual, and Lovecraft wrote in a letter that seventy five percent of that is mine, and other people think it's even more than seventy five percent him. Him, he was just being modest when he said that. So that one we can take and approach more as a straight up Lovecraft story, I think. So anyways, Two Black Bottles is a great story, although it's not uh, primarily a Lovecraft story. It's got some interesting elements, but it adds things. And that's what's great about the collaborations, I think, is that they add different geographical areas. Like, you know, Lovecraft never went into the Southwest had it not been for Zelia Bishop, right? It's like or he wouldn't have gone to the South if not for her. I mean, she may have not contributed much to those writing of those stories, but her ideas forced Lovecraft to put himself in the Southwest or the American South. Or um, the Castro uh, revisions force Lovecraft to deal with uh, Latin American kind of issues. He did that a little bit in, in the previous story, the Juan Romero story, which we looked at you know, a long, long time ago in this series. But, you know, he, these revisions do put Lovecraft in different settings. And, and, and I think that does a lot to, to build up the mythos, actually, right? Because if, if it's not for the revisions, the mythos writers who come later, the ones who kind of build on Lovecraft's tradition, would have had a much more parochial set of situations. A lot of the, like, if you want to imagine like a modern, broader world in which Lovecraftian horror exists, you can do that a little bit with Lovecraft stories. You got Call of Cthulhu, you got the transatlantic stuff, you, but they're still set in kind of one part of America for the most part. Um, you get these different settings and you get different ways of going at the cosmic horror in these different locations. So I think that's a real contribution of the collaborations. So anyways, that's going to be it for this. my thoughts on uh, Two Black Bottles. Um, and then the next time we'll look at a story that is much more a Lovecraft uh, work, one of his dreams, but more heavily edited than the very old folk called The Thing in the Moonlight. So, um, thanks for listening. Give me your own thoughts about Tallman and uh, the two black bottles. And maybe what we need is some kind of um, uh, different terminology, right, for call, for talking about these, these collaborations. Some are collaborations, some are revis revisions, some are just edited, some are um, some are ghostwritten. And, and I think we, we, we should 
you know, that's maybe a bit cumbersome, right? It's easier just to throw them all in one book and call them the collaborations. But, you know, there's... I don't like that it seems the original authors of some of these tales are being ignored in how these stories are remembered. They become known as Lovecraft stories, and that's not fair to the original authors in some cases. So anyways, that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah.